Good morning, everyone. My name is Tom Hallman, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church. It is my great joy and privilege today to open God's Word with you. And so if you would be so kind to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is page 641, if you have one of the church Bibles, 641. For the past weeks, we've been examining together this very first letter of Paul's that we have in the Bible, and today we come to the end of that letter. Paul's main point in this chapter, I'll tell you right out, uh, right out of the gates here, is that we would be on the watch for Christ's return, and that we'd have clear instruction for how we're to pass the time as we wait. As we consider these things, we're going to encounter some of the most wonderful, applicable, challenging, and even confusing verses in the New Testament. And personally, this text has impacted me very deeply, even as I've been considering it, mulling over it for the past weeks. And these verses have become very sweet to me. My prayer has been that today they will become very sweet to you as well. So we're going to dive right in. Now we're going to start looking at verses 1 through 11. This is the section on your outline called Keep Awake. Before we read these verses, though, let me give you a quick uh, Bible study tip here that's going to help you in understanding this text correctly. Because... Paul, in this text, is going to use two words that are very similar, uh, and, and it might be easy to mix up. In fact, it threw me off for quite some time as I was studying this. And the first word that he uses is the word asleep, A-S-L-E-E-P, asleep. This is the word Paul uses, or used in chapter 4, uh, to refer to Christians who have since died. But he says, will awaken when the Lord returns. That's the word asleep. However, the second word that Paul uses in this section is the word sleep. Same word without the A, and it means something very different. In, in this context, Paul is referring to those who sleep as those who are uh, being likened to being drunk or unaware. Okay, so that distinction is really critical to understanding this. Uh, let's look at verses 1 through 11 here, and I'll try to point them out. Uh, you can probably, uh, do we have, everybody have it on the screen? Okay, then look down at your Bibles. Don't look up at the screen. You'll find nothing up there. Verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are, are, you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or, is the other word, asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. It's worth noting the way that Paul arrives at this first topic in the text today, because he says, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. And then for the next ten verses... He writes to them concerning the times and the seasons. Paul is not being schizophrenic here, I don't think. Rather, Paul knows that human beings need to be reminded far more often than we need to be taught. And so, 
uh, he here is, is uh, reminding them for their benefit. He's going to do it again, even though they don't need it. And so Paul's first reminder is regarding this great day of the Lord, the, the greatest or worst of days for mankind, depending on where you sit. And he uses some very vivid metaphors to describe uh, this, this day of the Lord. For example, he writes in verse 2 that the day itself will come like a thief in the night with absolutely no warning. And in verse 3, Paul notes that while people are commenting on their personal peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, my wife, Allie, has gone into labor four times. And I've heard her describe the experience of labor and delivery to many women, especially those who are about to have their first babies, as they're unsurprisingly curious about what's about to take place. And what I've heard her say is that while you surely know that you're almost due because you've got this giant belly right here, and that you may even be feeling some mild contractions, there is nonetheless one moment when you are happily smiling for the camera and all seems well, and then suddenly there is another moment in which you say to your husband, get me to the hospital right now. (laughs) Those are distinct moments in time, and there is a change. So it is with pregnancy. There's an inevitability about it. Indeed, for a very long time, everybody can see what's going to happen. There is no surprise there. But Paul says that once it begins, once labor begins, there will be no escape. Sorry, I don't mean to scare you ladies out there who haven't had children yet, but those are Paul's words, not mine. You can take it up with him. Paul then spends the rest of this section of text offering contrasting metaphors. So, to the unaware... To those who who will be surprised by the day of the Lord, he says in verse 4 that they are uh, in darkness. And in verse 5, of the night and of the darkness. And then in verse 7, he writes that those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul is linking these metaphors, darkness, night, sleep, and drunkenness, to refer to those who are willingly unaware hiding where it is difficult to see, and ignoring what could otherwise be plainly known. And they will experience the sudden destruction that he talks about in verse 3. They are those whom God is destined for wrath, according to verse 9. But in contrast to those people, Paul reassures the Thessalonian church that they are instead children of light, children of the day, in verse 5. He goes on to admonish them in verse 6 to not sleep as others do, but to keep awake and be sober. And again in verse 8, he says that since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Paul links these metaphors, light, day, keeping awake, and sobriety, to refer to those who are are aware that the day of the Lord is coming. That day will not surprise those who are keeping awake. Uh, those who are keeping watch, those who are looking for his arrival with eager anticipation. In fact, Paul uses one more metaphor in verse 8, saying that those of the day have put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, you may notice here that that Paul is once again bringing this repeated theme we've seen throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians of faith, hope, and love. But I think that the primary thing he's trying to do here is conjure up an image for us of of a palace guard standing watch. So he's surrounded by all these, these drunken people, but he has a job. What's the guy's job? 
It's to watch. Regardless of whether it's day or night, as soon as he sees anything coming, it is his job to alert everyone, to make sure everybody knows what's happening in that moment. He's going to be ready. He's already decked out in his armor, and he's ready to do whatever needs to be done. Not so are all the people around him, whom Paul says are drunk. It's nighttime, it's dark out, they're drunk, and they're paying absolutely no heed to the fact that the day of the Lord is coming with certainty. We, friends, however, are supposed to look and act like that guard. Because, Paul writes, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is referring to the final salvation, when all this mess that we live in right now and call reality will all finally be made right. And that, my friends, is worth staying awake for, right? And so, tying back in his theme from chapter 4, Paul says that whether we are awake, meaning still alive, or asleep, meaning we died as Christians before the day of the Lord, we will still live with Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter if Jesus comes before or after each of us dies. All that matters is whether we were anticipating his return as spiritually sober men and women, either until the day he comes or the day our eyes close in death. And that's because death, friends, is not the end. Paul writes that we will obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. What an astounding thing to say. A man who died will be the one to save. Can a dead man do anything? But that's the wondrous thing, isn't it? Jesus Christ is not dead. Jesus Christ did indeed die for our sins, paying the penalty for all of our sin and rebellion against God, but God raised him up on the third day as proof that the price of our sin had been paid in full. And all who believe in Christ's death are now altogether forgiven and altogether free forever. And so it seems so beautifully and perfectly appropriate that he who died and was raised would be the one who comes to bring life to those who had died while waiting for him. How wonderful, how wonderful it will be for those whose life fades and whose eyes close, even while they are still searching their horizon for his coming. Because the next time those eyes open, they will behold the very person they've been looking for. Let us encourage one another. Build one another up with these reminders. Now, until that day comes, as we're faithfully watching, Paul says there are plenty of things for us to be doing. We're like guards on watch, but we're to be very busy guards on watch. And that brings us to the next point in your outline, which I've called guard duty. And this is verses 12 through 22. This next section is almost entirely application. By my count, in fact, there are 17 individual applications here. Thank you, Paul. This is a lot to preach on. Uh, but it's all good, and it's all God's Word. And so I'm going to try to fit it all in here by grouping them into a few sections, which you can find on your outline. So as watchful guards who must keep awake, here is our duty roster. Let's take a look at these a little bit at a time. The first... Verses 12 and 13, abundantly esteem your leaders. We ask you, brothers, 
to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, if you would be so kind as to permit me to squirm a little bit while I'm up here, as one who is over you in the Lord here at Grace Fellowship Church, I hereby admonish you to believe the Bible and do what it says. And here it says that you are to esteem your leaders very highly in love because of our work. Now listen, if faithfulness to the Bible didn't require me to say that, I'd never do it. It's awkward. It feels oddly self-serving. But what good would church leadership be in the first place if I failed to admonish you to follow the clear teaching of the Bible? Failing to do so would not be some form of humility on my part, but rather the epitome of pride. And so I ask that you bear with me and then do what the Bible says, no matter what it says, and no matter how much you or I would prefer it said otherwise. And here, brothers and sisters, Paul is emphatic in his spirit-inspired instruction. Abundantly esteem your leaders. Respect them and esteem them very highly in love, he says. Well, who are these leaders? The most natural reading of the text suggests that these, these three qualities point to the church elders. We are those who labor among you and whom God has put over you in the Lord and who admonish you. And by God's grace, that is very often a joy for us. And you respond with humility and appreciation when we do. However, it's not always that way. There are times of much difficulty, confusion, crying out in desperate prayer, and there's lots and lots of hard work involved. In fact, I want to share more about the tireless labor of these men among you so that you can help, I can help you fulfill this, this part of your duty roster right here. And I will do that in just a moment. But honestly, after last week's presentation of gifts and appreciation for the elders, I almost decided to scrap this entire part of the outline because you guys are already doing this part of your duty roster so well. Yet, just as Paul says that the Thessalonians didn't have to have anything written to them and then he proceeded to write a very great deal to them, so I've decided to encourage you in these very things anyway. I suppose it's part of what it would mean to esteem them very highly in love, after all. So let me remind you, church, about the tireless work of the faithful men that God has set over you. Let me tell you about Reese John. Reese handles just about every physical logistic of this building. He runs the building committee that keeps this entire joint church ownership process thing working and working really well. And all manner of miscellaneous requests and repairs and reorders and other crazy things all fall into his lap on almost a daily basis, and he tires, tirelessly uh, administrates all of it. Moreover, Reese regularly checks in with each of the groups that use our building, not only overseeing Grace Fellowship, but he's checking in with YKC and CDFC and whatever other acronyms use our building and the people who do the polling places uh, that, that this is going to turn into in just a couple of weeks. He, he oversees all of that, and, and I don't know what we do without him, honestly. Also, you may not realize, but Reese is very often in this building at all hours of the night, cleaning up and arranging things with absolutely no complaint. And just, just the other night, he was in here verifying that everything will be ready for our baptism service coming up on November 12th. The very first baptism service in the history of Grace Fellowship Church that will be in our own church. Thank you, Reese. <laughs> this, I mean, this is astounding. And Reese was in here 
just making sure everything was going to be working for him. And then, then just a couple of days later, I, I, I heard from him that he was in here because a pipe burst and flooded our entire fellowship hall. You probably didn't even know this. He came in here and, and spent his free evening, which wasn't very free anyway, to now clean up so that we wouldn't have to worry about it, nor would any of the others who are using our building. Thank you, Reese, for your labor among us and over us in the Lord. Let me tell you about Bill Dritz. First of all, none of us would be here if it weren't for Bill. He's one of the founding members of Grace Fellowship Church and figured out everything from how to legally become a church, do you have any idea? I don't know, to how to organize it, to only God knows what other things he had to figure out. Now, many of us like to poke fun at Bill for being the biggest of all big picture thinkers, right? And that's likely a true assessment, honestly, Bill. But the man has spent countless hours poring over the details of setting up this church and making it great. Moreover, if it were not for Bill's patience, his wisdom, and his nearly incomprehensible ability to bring together highly disparate parties into a unified whole, we'd never have gotten this building. Not in a million years. If you had any idea, and I honestly have barely any idea, how complex and tenuous that whole situation was, you would marvel, as I do, at how Bill personally made it all work. And just one more thing I want to mention about Bill. Have any of you ever seen Bill and Bonnie fail to eagerly greet visitors to our church? Though naturally an introvert's introvert, Bill would prefer to spend all his days in the darkness in a cave. Bill purposefully and warmly approaches every new face he sees and does all he can to make sure they feel welcome. That's probably why a lot of us are here today. Oh, that we would all have even half Bill's commitment to loving people so practically. So church, you would do well to esteem Bill very highly in love. And lastly, let me tell you about Peter Kroll. Peter Kroll is one of the greatest men I know. You see Peter up front here preaching more than anyone else, but you may not realize that he spends hours each week training each of the other preachers, including myself, in how to construct and deliver an effective, biblical, God-glorifying sermon that flows from a dependent, godly, and Christ-centered heart. Peter has sacrificed more for this church than any of us realizes, including me, because Peter does not draw attention to those things. He's too preoccupied with drawing our attention to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Scriptures. I have personally benefited much from Peter's wisdom and character over the years, and that continues to be the case each and every time we meet. In fact, if there is anything praiseworthy about my own growth and leadership over the past several years, there is a very good chance that it was Peter that God used to affect that change in me. Brothers and sisters, you would do very well to... Respect and praise God for Peter Cole. And I could easily go on. It was painful to trim out many things from my list here for lack of time today, and I have barely scratched the surface of what these men do for you and sacrifice for you on a weekly and monthly basis for the Lord. Fellow elders I personally labor with are altogether excellent men, worthy of our respect for their labor among us. Continue to esteem them very highly in love. Let's talk about the next point in your outline. Patiently assist everyone. Verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 14 gives us three categories of people to consider. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. The idle are those who are not striving after the Lord. Okay, They're not taking this whole guard duty thing seriously and are in danger of setting aside their breastplate of faith and love so as to pick up a strong drink and enter the darkness themselves. For these, Paul says, admonishment is needed. We must warn them of the pending doom, this, this coming shipwreck of their faith. We must burn the lighthouse beacon, sound the foghorn, and call out on every radio station we can to warn them that they are in grave danger should they continue down that path. The second category is the faint-hearted. These are those who are afraid. Perhaps they've been battered by the waves time and time again and are in danger of losing sight of land. Their thick fog of uncertainty may cause them to be slow to trust God or others for direction, and they may feel hopeless that things will ever change. These, Paul writes, need encouragement. They are not the idle. Rather, they are active and capable but they need reminders of what's true. They need an outside perspective, someone outside the fog, or, or maybe someone who has navigated these waters before so as to encourage them along in their faith. And the final category, friends, is the weak. These are those who know where they want to go and are not shy about striving hard to get there, but despite, despite all this, their ship continues to take on water constantly. And, and perhaps some only have tattered sails with which to catch the wind. Those in this situation have a tremendous amount to offer to others, but they can't do it on their own. So Paul concludes what they need is help. And the type that is more than encouragement. The weak may have all the encouragement they need, but motivation does not a sturdy mast make. They'll need others to come on board and make repairs, even slowly over time. Or they may need to get a tug to pull them to dry dock for more extensive repairs. Now let me be clear. I do not believe that these three categories represent three different types of people. Rather, I think these categories represent all people at different times. I myself have vacillated between being idle and faint-hearted and weak, and I've probably been all three even in this past week. And so how do you know which someone is and at which time so that you can offer the right remedy? Well, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. Uh, if you want, you can ask Peter to put that in the preaching rotation, and we'll, we'll cover that one later. Or you can come to my place for lunch if you want more personal attention, and I'd be happy to talk about it. However, I can say this for now. Though we may not always be certain which of these three categories someone is in, Paul gives us something that we can always do and be certain that it will be helpful. And that is this. Be patient with them all. In other words, patiently assist everyone. If you have patience, you will always be of service. But if you lack patience, even the most rightly targeted admonishment or encouragement or help will fail to meet its mark. In fact, because we'll no doubt get this wrong and cause pain, Paul adds in verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
One of the reasons I love Paul is that he isn't shy about using superlatives. See that no one repays anyone for evil, but always seek to do good to who? Oh, to one another and to everyone. So you might say, well, but, but Paul, what about, and he says, yes, but, but even those who are, uh-huh, those two, and, and, but, but what if they always, Paul is not allowing us any outs here. And I think that's because that's the attitude of Jesus Christ. It certainly was the attitude of all the apostles, and it's been the attitude throughout history from great men, from, from Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King Jr. This was their attitude, and it must be the attitude of our church today. Repay no one evil for evil. Always seek to do good. Everyone. Let's talk about prayerfully praising God's plan. Verses 16 through 18. Paul writes this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As before, Paul's extreme language is unavoidable. Always, without ceasing, all circumstances. But don't misunderstand me, friends. Paul is not exaggerating. He really expects the church to look like this because this really is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But how? How can you do this? How can you rejoice always when your child is sick, when your job is miserable, when your best friends don't understand you, or when you don't know how you're going to make ends meet this month? How can you rejoice? It, and is Paul suggesting that we should stop caring for our children, working hard at our job, talking with our friends, or reviewing our budgets in order to pray ceaselessly? How could we even begin to give thanks in these circumstances? Well, honestly, my friends, I wish I could give you an alliterative three points applicational outline for, for how to make all of this happen. But I can't. Honestly, these verses leave me truly bewildered sometimes. More than sometimes. But I can testify from personal experience that they are nonetheless altogether true and satisfying and sweet. In fact, just a couple weeks back, these verses truly came alive for me. And I want to describe for you exactly what that looked like. Now, I'm not at liberty to share everything I'd like to in this setting here. But I hope I can share enough such that you can draw connections to your own experiences, past, present, and future. See, there had been this particular dream of mine that I've been asking God to bring to fruition for years now. It wasn't quite a lifetime of prayer, but it was long enough and carried such depth that it felt like a part of me. A dream that as much, was as much a part of me as my name or my personality. Yet at the same time, I have always, rarely, let my hopes get up very high regarding this dream, as I didn't want to face the potential disappointment should it not come to be, or perhaps come to be, and be less than I'd expected it was. Still, despite my deeply ingrained cynicism about it, 
I regularly allowed myself to pull out the dream and look at it and examine it and prayerfully wonder if and when someday God might make that dream become a reality. And then suddenly, he did. And when he did, all of the joys and longings and hopes and dreams associated with that prayer exploded outward through my heart and mind and mouth, and all my doubts and cynicism shattered instantly like a light bulb smashing onto a concrete slab. And Though up until that point, I would have said that I was regularly rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. As these verses say, there was now a tectonic shift at the very deepest level of my being. And now it seemed that all I could do was was rejoice and pray and give thanks. Now, that literally wasn't all I was doing, but it all merged together somehow. Like my work was done while rejoicing. And my conversations were had while praying somehow. And even my sleep became giving thanks, which admittedly had some drawbacks. But God provided coffee and all was well. But then, just a few days later, without warning, God asked me if I'd give it back. Would I surrender the dream to him? Would I trust him more than what he'd given. And in that moment, that seemingly endless supply of, of joy and longing and hopes and dreams, it just, it just all dried up in a moment. And after a brief period of utter shock, the tears came. And they came for hours. And then they came for days. But those hours and days, as painful as anything that I'd experienced and as long as I could remember, also brought with them something I had not anticipated. Buried beneath the tears and slowly rising to the surface was rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving to God. These things began as a trickle, and then they became a stream. Before I knew it, they were roaring rivers of grace flowing not from my grief, but from him who caused the grief in asking me to surrender my dream. Let me tell you, you rarely question your sanity more than when you're in so much pain that you're unable to compose yourself enough to speak, yet at the very same time singing songs of praise to God at the top of your lungs and with all sincerity. I don't know how that works. In fact, God used a particular worship song as my lifeline during those days. And Jeff has very graciously agreed to play it as our closing song today. I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to make it through that song with dry eyes. But I will make it the entire time while rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks to God. Because this is his will for me in Christ Jesus. And I'm grateful for it. My hope, brothers and sisters, is not that you'll experience what I experienced. I believe that was a custom, tailored for Tom experience from the Lord for just this time, perhaps just this sermon. And it was exactly what I needed to grow in him. What I hope for you, rather, 
simply that you'll see these admonishments to rejoice always and to pray ceaselessly and to give thanks in all circumstances, not as impossible things to reject, but as beautiful promises to cling to in Christ. One more application for us here. Next section. Wisely discern God's words. Verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. When the Thessalonian church was gathered together, it would happen that someone would have something they believed God wanted them to share. But how was the church to know whether that person, what that person was going to share was actually from God or was the result of, let's say, too much Thessalonian pale ale the night before? Paul's counsel is threefold. Number one, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. That is, just because you don't like what God is saying is not a reason to ignore it or hate it. We do not judge God's words. They judge us. Number two, test everything. Listen to what's said and compare it to what we already know to be true of God. So if someone says, for example, be patient with one another, well, then you say, great, we just read that. That's totally from the scriptures and that is from God. However, if someone says that we should remove the weak people from church so that we can better perform his powerful work throughout the world, then you can know with certainty that at best, this person is gravely mistaken and is at worst an agent of Satan themselves. Number three, hold fast to the good and abstain from every form of evil. This is the application of our previous step. If it's good, cling to it. If it's not, decline it. Pass. This is excellent counsel for all of us. In fact, as we grow in discernment and maturity in Christ, we should all be doing this constantly in all circumstances, whether we're we're listening to a radio program or listening to Tom preach up front on Grace, at Grace Fellowship on Sunday morning. So how's Tom doing today? Test everything I say. If it's good, then by all means, do it. And if it's not, then don't. By the way, if it's the latter category, please let me know. I really want to grow in these things. And so we come to the end of this section of Paul's letter. He's given us strong counsel to diligently remain awake as a guard on watch. And he's given us practicals for how to pass the time in community with one another. Paul's now ready to close out this short letter, but in typical Pauline fashion, he still has at least one more profound truth to share that he kind of just shoves right in there at the end of the letter. And it's actually the thing that we must remember above all else that you might hear today. So let's very quickly look at this last section of text, verses 23 to 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm going to finish our time just looking at the, just two of those verses, 23 and 24. In this section, Paul says that a time is coming when one will be completely sanctified, that means will be holy, and two, our spirit and soul and body will be blameless, altogether unmarred by sin. 
And this will happen, Paul says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day we're waiting for is coming. He is coming. And we will be perfected when he comes. And here is the key question. This is the main thing we need to remember. Who is the active party in making that happen? Verse 23. The God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, in a chapter of the Bible in which there is this much personal application for us to do, or in a sermon on a chapter in which the bulk of your outline is stuff you are rightly expected to do as a Christian, I exhort you to remember these words. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In, in a conversation with another believer in which one or both of you see the opportunity for one or both of you to more fully live out Christ's commands, remember, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That doesn't mean we, we have no role to play. Far from it. We are watchmen, palace guards on duty, and we have a job to do. But he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Students, whether you are approaching the end of your time in college or are still trembling at the newness of it all, you might be wondering where on earth God is leading you. Has college prepared you as you'd hoped? Will all the time and money and all-nighters be worth it? Was it enough? Well, I don't know. And you may not know for a long time. But you have a sure hope, a more sure hope than any scholastic achievement. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Fellow elders, I commend you for all you do for the church, for how you pour yourselves out for all these dear friends here, for your service and sacrifice. But the next time that we feel overwhelmed or uncertain or simply do not know how we're going to handle the next opportunity the Lord gives us, we must remember, he who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. And moms and dads, we speak to you. Raising children is one of the most joyful and painful and wonderful and exhausting tasks that anyone can ask, can be asked to do. It requires perseverance beyond what any of us innately have, and then it requires more than that because they get up during the night and get sick again. So how on earth are we going to rightly prepare our little ones for this next, to be this next generation of watchmen waiting for Christ? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. To those whose hopes were recently raised to new heights, only to have them dashed onto the concrete below, and you're wondering when the pain will possibly end. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when he does, this broken pain-laden, sin-saturated reality we live in will suddenly cease to be. And we will be made perfect 
and be with him forever. He who calls us Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that, that is our hope. If you hadn't called us, if you weren't faithful to do it, then we're just going to go home. We might as well quit. God, our hearts tremble at, our, at how quickly we become idle, how much help we need, how weak we are. Yet you've called us to stand watch constantly, to remain awake, to be sober. And God, it's so difficult, especially when pain, even pain from you, brings us to our knees. Help us, Lord. We know that you who called us are faithful. You will surely do it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.